Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Everyone, you can have a seat. Jay's throwing his pick out to the crowd like we're at some rock concert or something. That was good stuff. Great to be with you all. Good morning. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there, there's a couple in the seats kind of nearby, yeah, I'm sure. Um, go ahead and grab one of those. And, and then if you need one, we have some we can give you um, that you can make it as your own or call it your own. Uh, I wanted to just two other things here. Um, Pastor Will and uh, Brendan Hellyer, they are uh, in Indianapolis today or in that area, roughly Indiana, uh, as part of a a Saints Prison ministry trip. So we want to be praying for those guys. Um, As you may know, uh, we go into various prisons around. uh, We play softball and then we share the gospel. And it's a great opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity, the access that we're granted. So Pastor Will and and Brendan, they're actually leading a church from the West Virginia area and sort of like, this is what it, this is what you got to do. This is how it works and, and showing them so that they can lead their own trips, um, which is pretty exciting. Uh, in our church, we are going up to New England in August, I think. Yeah, August, we're going up there to New England. So um, you can still come on that if you're a man. You have to be a man because we're going in the male prisons. Um, but even if you don't play softball and you want to go on the trip, you can be what, what are called bleacher preachers. Uh, which essentially means you just walk up and down uh, during the game and, hey, man, what's your name? What are you doing here? You know, this kind of thing. And you get to talk to guys, and, and you can just cut to the chase. They know why you're there. You're there to tell them about Christ. You don't have to be like, so, you ever think about spiritual? You know, you don't have to play any of those little games. You just jump right in and start talking to people. So if that's something that interests you, you'd like to, a little more information about when we go, uh, we'd love to talk to you. But let's pray for those guys even this morning, their last set of games, correct? Uh, this morning. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the Saints Prison Ministry. What a unique ministry, the use of sports, softball, volleyball, soccer, basketball, uh, to break down walls uh, and go over those walls uh, so that we can enter into the prisons and, and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation for anyone who calls out to Christ. And Lord, we thank you for uh, Brandon and Will. And I imagine uh, after Lots of games. They're tired physically this morning. And uh, Lord, I pray you would strengthen them to give their best at this new prison. Lord, I pray you would bless uh, the men from this other church from West Virginia. Lord, you'd give them a vision of uh, this ministry and the opportunity for their church. Lord, to obey your command and to go and visit those that are in the prisons and, and to go into all the world. And so bless those guys. Keep them safe as they travel Uh, by vehicle in Indiana and then by plane back to us and uh, just watch over them and thank you for them. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for this facility. We thank you that this Sunday morning the air is working. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to delve into a new book of study and we ask your blessing, Lord, on our study of the book of Mark. We pray that you administer, Lord, to the deep places. I ask even, Lord, in just a special prayer that we would see Jesus in this study, Lord, in a fresh way as if we were sitting on the side of the road watching him go by, Lord, ministering and and just taking this in for the first time, even if we've read the Gospels a million times, and we would fall in love with our Savior all over again. So, Lord, bless your word and quiet those children. In Jesus' name, amen. We like kids. All right, Mark. Mark chapter 1 is where we are. We've been, uh, we've been in the Old Testament a little bit looking at some of the minor prophets, which was, uh, was good and healthy for us to do. Um, sometimes we tend to ignore certain parts of our Bibles. And so we were in Hosea. We were in Joel. Last week we did something unique. We did a sort of an understanding of the New Testament. 
Um, just sort of getting the overview, the picture of why these books are where they are and what were they trying to communicate and so on and so forth. And I spent some time in doing that and highlighting the first section of the New Testament, which are the historical books or the narrative books, the, the ones that are just given us inf information, essentially, history uh, that we could look at. And they are, again, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's that book of Acts. And the, the Gospels, looking at the life of Jesus Christ from the vantage point of four different witnesses, and then the book of Acts, that, peri that period of the early church history, from Jesus' ascension for the next 30 years or so as his disciples would obey the Great Commission. And they would go forth and seek to advance the gospel as Jesus told them to do and to make disciples of all the nations. Well, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest of those. And so if you're trying to get through a book pretty quickly, you might want to take Mark because it's the shortest. Matthew has 28 chapters. Mark has 16 both Luke and uh, John are also in the, the 20s. And so Mark is somewhat the shortest of them. It's a book that uh, people have commented on and said it is written with journalistic simplicity. That essentially means you and I can understand it. You know, it, it's pretty bare bones type of writing. Mark wasn't trying to impress anybody uh, with sort of his superior knowledge. He perhaps didn't have a superior knowledge. He just simply put it down there in a way that people could understand it. Uh, Mark was writing to Gentiles that either had come to the faith or were about to come to the faith. They were in the city of Rome, and Mark was writing to those individuals there. And they didn't have sort of all of this background knowledge of Old Testament things. And so Mark just sort of laid it right out very simply for them so they could understand it. I really like that. I'm a pretty simple guy. I don't need to be wowed by all kinds of stuff. I don't understand most of that kind of stuff. But I just like the simplicity of things. And Mark is my friend. Um, and he was writing for me, uh, I guess you might say. They say Mark is also, uh, one commentator, I'll, I'll kind of read it. He says, Mark writes like an eager child might tell a story. Just and, 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 and. There's one section where it's basically one run-on sentence for an entire chapter. Uh, there's periods and things like that, but it's, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this, slow down, man, slow down. All right, and, and Mark, he's excited to share his particular message here. Now, that doesn't make that mean that he didn't have a, an intent when he wrote. He just didn't, you know, put pen to paper and start going here. He had a purpose, and his intent was a little bit different from Matthew's intent, and a little different from Luke's, and a little different from John. Matthew, that gospel, was written to essentially Jews. And Matthew's purpose was to prove to those Jews, to show those Jews that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And so it's going to kind of take a different flavor as he attempts to accomplish that particular purpose. Luke set out to show that Jesus was the perfect man, the unique son of man, as Jesus often refers to himself. We find that phrase a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And so he goes on his particular track. John tells us, in John chapter 20, he says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he set out to show that Jesus was the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so you see that unique aspect of things in his particular writing. And again, as you would expect, Mark then sets out with his purposes. Mark's going to set out to show that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant of God who came to give his life so that we might have life. Mark chapter 10, Jesus, or Mark quotes Jesus saying this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even God in the flesh, the Messiah himself, came not to be served, but to serve other people. And that's the unique um, focus of Mark's writing, to show that Jesus is the suffering servant that is uh, presented to us in the Old Testament. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you're familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, there's essentially two sets of prophecy, prophecies about him. One of them shows Jesus Christ as the conquering king. Now, we spent some time looking at Hosea, we spent some time looking at Joel, and we talked about the day of the Lord. And in that conversation, if you were with us, it talks about Jesus coming back, defeating his enemies, and setting up a throne here on the earth where he will rule and reign for how many years? A thousand years. We call that the millennium. You're with me. Great. All right. That's the conquering king. Then 
there are other prophecies, and there's lots of them, of one way or the other. There's other prophecies that show Jesus, it doesn't use his name, but it shows that the Messiah is going to be beaten and bruised and crucified and despised and rejected. Now, you look at that, and you're like, well, how does that fit with this conquering king? They don't seem to go together. And initially, it, the interpretation essentially was, or the way they dealt with it was, yeah, I don't know how that, I don't know how that works. And then gradually, they just began to sort of ignore the suffering servant and just focus in on what was more comfortable for them, the conquering king. Mark, in his gospel, is going to set out to demonstrate it was no accident that Jesus was crucified. It was no accident that the Jewish leaders rejected him and spit on him and all those other things that you see there because the scripture prophesied that he would be a suffering servant as well as a conquering king. There's some passages you might want to write down for, to look at later on. Psalm chapter 22. Isaiah, are you writing that? Some of you are like, yeah, I ain't writing nothing. All right, here. Psalm 22, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 52 and 53. Great places where you can go, and it paints this picture of Jesus as the suffering servant. And as I said, that dichotomy was a strange thing for the Jewish people. We can look back and we're like, yeah, oh, I get it. I, I would have gotten it. You wouldn't have gotten it because they didn't get it. But they didn't get it. They didn't quite understand it. A first coming where he would suffer and a second coming where he would reign. We can look back and say, yeah, makes perfect sense. Now, Mark, having been a witness of the first coming, decides, you know what, I'm going to start, I'm going to write something down. I'm going to set to paper that which I saw, that which I experienced, so that other people might be able to understand these things, see these things as well. Now, when you read Matthew, Luke, and John, Matthew and Luke specifically, they begin with a genealogy. And Matthew, writing to Jews, traces Jesus' heritage back to the head of those Jews, Abraham. And it goes all the way back there to Abraham. See, he's a good Jew. He comes right from Abraham. Uh, Luke, writing about the Son of Man, he traces it all, all the way back to the first man, which is Adam. John, writing about the Son of God, he just simply jumps into it and he says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He goes all the way back to God. Mark doesn't start with the genealogy because Mark's writing about servants. Who cares about a, a slave's genealogy? Well, I do, but I mean, like, in reality, like, who cares about a slave's genealogy in, in the history of things? Nobody does. Is he a good servant? Well, he comes from a great family. Is he a good servant? And so John just jumps right into it and starts to tell us about what Jesus did and how he did it and how he ministered to people. John, excuse me, Mark looks at the, the deeds of Jesus, even more so than the words of Jesus. John will go on and tell us about, excuse me, his name is Mark. If I get that wrong, you fix it, okay? Mark is going to look at 19 of Jesus' miracles but only four of Jesus' parables, okay? 19 of Jesus' miracles, but only four of Jesus' parables. Because his chief goal is to show a Gentile world the act of love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Can you catch that? You with me? A little distracted, I know. All right, that's his chief goal, to show the Gentile world the active love of God in Jesus Christ. And so he's gonna show you more of his deeds than his words as we find in some of the other gospels. And so we see the love of God in Jesus Christ. We see him serving needy men. We see him seeking after sinners and ultimately saving all that will trust in him because that's his aim. His aim is to present a picture of Jesus in the simplest and most easy to understand terms. Mark does another thing. He writes in what's called the historic present. And I really appreciate that because it's something I like to do in my own heart and in my own mind. The historic present means that John talks about, Mark, he talks about past events as if they're happening right in front of him. That's the historic present. I think that's very healthy because this is not just some dusty history book that he's writing or that we would be reading. But in Mark's eyes, these things, like in, it's in his mind eye, these things just happened seconds earlier. 
and he's jotting them down. I think that's very healthy for us, and I think it's a good way for us to approach the Scriptures, particularly the narrative stories, the Gospels, the Old Testament history books, and so on and so forth. This is our introduction. A couple more things. We don't know a lot about Mark, but we do know some things. We know quite a bit, actually, but not every particular detail about this fellow named Mark. Tradition tells us, if you remember the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is uh, praying with his disciples. Then uh, the soldiers come. They're going to arrest him, and they'll eventually take him, and they will crucify him. And in one of the Gospels, Mark's actually, it tells us that there was a young man that the soldiers grabbed his cloak, and he sort of wrestled away from it, and he ran away naked. Tradition tells us that's Mark. It's only found in the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark perhaps includes, oh, by the way, I ran away naked that particular evening. Uh, He includes that in there. I would have left it out. Um, But he includes that there. Acts chapter 12 tells us, oh, and by the way, where it says that he is a young man, the word there is, it's youth or boy, 11 years old, 12 years old, something like that. All right? And so uh, use that as part of the picture we're forming of who this particular fellow is. Did you hear that? It's crazy. All right. Acts, did everybody hear it? Like people above it. Okay. All right. In Acts chapter 12, we learn that Mark actually went by two names. Here's my problem. I've been calling him John. That's his real name. His name, notice what it says there, the mother of John whose other name was Mark. So I've been right all along uh, here in this process. All right. So John is his Hebrew name. Mark is his Roman name. All right. So John, Mark, we commonly know him because the gospel's named after him, uh, Mark. We learn in Acts 12 that he was the son of a woman named Mary who was wealthy enough to have many gathered together at her house. Now, most of their houses were no bigger than our sheds, you know, so maybe it was like one of our bedrooms or something. That, that would have been the size of their house or maybe two of those put togethers, together. And yet her house was large enough Whereas it says in Acts chapter 12 that many were gathered together there praying. It became sort of the home for the church. It was large enough for that. And so she was a woman of means, uh, and he grew up in that home. He grew up where the church was meeting, and so he's been around these things. And you start putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, and almost certainly what we have is a kid who grew up in the church around the things of the faith and around people of the faith. Acts 13 tells us when he became an adult, there he's labeled as John in Acts 13, that he actually went on a mission project with Paul and Barnabas. And it says there, as you can see, uh, that John went along with them to assist them. Now that word assist in some of our versions is translated to serve, or he was a servant, a minister, or a helper. It's actually the Greek term which is used for an under rower. You know what an under rower is? John, my John, do we have a picture of, of we have a picture of Mark. There he is, all right, as an under rower. Uh, you may recall, that's from the movie Ben-Hur. It's actually Charlton Heston. Um, but that's the, if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, where he was this kind of famous dude, I don't know, he was wealthy or whatever it was, and then he got sold into slavery um, by some scoundrel. And he ends up as an under rower. So these were the slaves. They were under these huge ships. And I don't know, there's 50, 100 of those guys under there. And that was their job. That was to row. That's a stinky job. Literally, it was a stinky job. It's an awful job. You row and you row and you row. And if you're not fast enough, they beat you or whatever. You're like, well, I'm out on the open ocean. No, you're not. You're down in the bottom of the boat. And the open ocean is up top. And everyone gets to enjoy the air and all that stuff. And you're in some crummy under rower position. And you do that for the rest of your life, and then you die. All right? That's the word, though, that is used to describe the ministry when it said that uh, Mark assisted Paul and Barnabas. That was his responsibility. He did all of those other little jobs so that Paul and Barnabas could do what they needed to do in the missions that they were called uh, to do. So he was an under-rower. Uh, Unfortunately... Um, he failed as a servant. And it happens. A lot of us have set out, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to do a great job. And we really blow it. And we mess up and we do something or we just abandon everything altogether. That's what Mark did. 
It tells us, you can read Acts chapter 12, 13 uh, and following, that things got a little difficult, things got a little tough, and Mark said, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm heading out, I'm getting out of here. And he left. And uh, eventually, when Paul and Barnabas were going to go on a second missionary journey, Barnabas said, you know, we should bring that kid Mark again. And Paul's like, no way. I'm not bringing that kid. Last time when I need him, he took off from me. And we're not bringing him on this trip. You know, we got a purpose. We got a plan. And he failed as a servant. And so you can read all about that. It's found in Acts chapter 13. Notice what it says. Now Paul and his companions, they put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them. Now that word left them there means it's the idea of departed them, abandoned them is the idea. Not that he had to like, you know, man, look, I got to get home, my wife, the kids, you know, this kind of, it's not something like that. It's like sneaking out at night and, you know, and running away. And that's what John did. All right, so bad. This is from Acts 15. It said, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one that had withdrawn from them. And that word withdrawn, that's the word that means to desert. And so Paul just feels he can't do it. Now, Barnabas says, well, I'm taking them. And so those two split, and Barnabas and Paul, they go do their, excuse me, Barnabas and Mark go do their thing, and Paul actually takes Silas, who's going to be his partner, and God used it. The ministry was doubled, so to speak, but nonetheless, it's, it sort of split them up in this process. And Mark, if you will, looking at his life, forming this picture, Mark is a failed servant. He set out to serve the Lord, and he failed royally, big time. Everyone knew it. And isn't it like the Lord, however, that the one who failed in a very public way as he did, God said, you know what, I'm going to use you. And he restored him. The Lord restored him. He was restored to Mark. And isn't it interesting that the one who failed as a servant becomes to write this gospel specifically showing Jesus as the perfect servant because he was a guy that understood what it meant to be a failed servant. I think that should give each of us hope. I've sought to serve the Lord. I'm sure you have. All of us have in our own little ways have sought to serve the Lord. And I would suspect any of us that have stepped out to serve the Lord in some way has failed in some way. And some of us in kind of embarrassing ways have failed. And the Lord dusts us off. He confronts us. He deals with us. And then he slaps us on the butt. He says, get out there and do it again or or something like that. You get the idea here. So we should be encouraged. I want to encourage you in this. Well, God will forgive me, but Paul will never forgive me. In actuality, this is what Paul writes of Mark some maybe about 12 to 15 years later, I think, if my math is correctly. He says this in 2 Timothy, only Luke is with me. Now, Paul's talking about being in prison. He said, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. There had been this restoration. I love the book of Philemon, that small little book, that personal letter from Paul to Philemon about some guy named Onesimus. And at the very, very, and the whole thing is about Onesimus wronged Philemon. Philemon, you need to forgive Onesimus and accept him back, this kind of a thing. And then at the very end of it, the very thing that Paul is preaching to Philemon that he needs to do Paul demonstrates that he did that very same thing because he mentions the profitability and the usefulness of Mark, the guy that had abandoned him and said, I want nothing to do with him. And sometimes it's so easy for us to tell other people what they need to do. You need to forgive that person. You need to, you know, walk in humility or whatever and not do it ourselves. And Paul demonstrates he does the very same thing he tells the other guy to do, and he forgives Mark there. Colossians chapter 4, it says this, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, where's Paul writing from? Jail. Mark's there with him in jail. Now, that doesn't mean Mark was a prisoner necessarily. Their jails were a little bit different than ours. It, it could be something more like house arrest. But Mark's right there with Paul, and he's being a blessing to Paul. He went on to prove himself useful. Now we're almost there. Um, There's a passage in the New Testament where the Greeks come up to one of Jesus' disciples and they say, sir, we would see Jesus. I suspect some of you are thinking that right now. Could you get into it? I'm going to get into it. We're we're almost there. One more thing I want you to notice here, uh, and this is a correction from last week. So last week as I was talking, I mentioned that Peter was the uncle of Mark, that's wrong. I don't know why you didn't tell me. 
that is wrong. Barnabas is the uncle or like cousin, but an older cousin of Mark, not Peter. So go back to your notes, cross that out. That was a mistake. I'm sorry. I, I knew it in my head, but it, whatever. Um, I will tell you this, Mark and Peter had a very, very close relationship. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, she who is at Babylon, like the church that is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And so that wasn't his literal son. He was like a, um, a son in the faith. And so either Peter led Mark to the Lord or Peter discipled Mark when he was young in the Lord. But they had this very, very close relationship and he comments on it, but he was not physically his cousin. That was, a, that was a mistake last week, so you might want to go back and you might want to correct your notes if you have those uh, in there. And the Gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's um, rem- reminiscences. Is that the right one? Did I say it right? Um, where Peter is just sort of thinking things through and telling Mark. Uh, the Gospel of Mark has more personal, like, and this look came on Jesus' face, that kind of stuff. Not, not exactly that, but that kind of thing that somebody had to actually be sitting there to be able to say that kind of a thing. And it's because Peter was sitting there. Remember, Peter was one of the closest disciples of Jesus and was there with him in these things and is telling Mark, and Mark is putting these things down. Some have even called the Gospel of Mark, they, they kind of... Uh, not laughingly, it's not that funny, but um, kiddingly have referred to it as the gospel according to Peter because he was the source of material for Mark for his particular writing. All right, you all set? Let's get into it. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We don't want to take too much at one time. Let's stop there. So gospel, you've heard the word, yeah, I know the gospel, that's uh, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, the word gospel literally means good news. That's what the word gospel means. And so this is the good news, as you can see, of Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus, is going to be the center and the focus of this entire book. It's going to look at him. Even the book of Acts, you go into the book of Acts, and it talks about the works that Paul did and Peter Peter did and the others did. It's work that they did for Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's the center. He's the focus. He's the one that Mark is going to seek to point his readers to. Not the church or not the things. We got this great, you know, soup kitchen ministry. Not all those kinds of things. It's what Jesus is. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, your Bible probably has, I suspect, a title at the the top of page one of Mark. Mine says this, the gospel according to Mark. That's not in the original. Um, That was added later by the publishers of our Bibles. Mark, if you had to give a title, it would be verse one. If, If you like, all right, Mark, what's the title? It would be verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's a long title. But if anything, that would be the title that is given to this particular book. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to set out to point our attention to Jesus and write about Jesus. Again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Salvation made possible in him. Now, I want to break that down a little because I think every word that he chooses there is important. So he says, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. We'll stop there. So first things first, he calls him Jesus. Now, Jesus is the name that was given to that man by his earthly father. Now, remember, Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, stepfather, if you will. And in Matthew, we learn that an angel came, revealed to Jesus, that he, excuse me, revealed to Joseph that his wife has conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit and that you know, she wasn't out running around or something and got pregnant, that he should keep her as his betrothed, his engaged wife, until she gives birth, he, would, he should keep himself from her. And then it says this in Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus' earthly name is, as you see there, Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. That's the reason why that little phrase is added there where it says he will save his people from their sins. And so first things first, what we have here, Mark tells us that this is the gospel of the one 
who saves. That's what Paul, or excuse me, Mark begins with. The gospel of the one who saves. Secondly, he then calls him the Christ. So you see there I've underlined the words, the beginning of the gospel of Christ. Now contrary to popular opinion, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Jesus' title. It's the English translation of the Greek word, which is what the New Testament was written in, Christos. You can see Christ there. It's just sort of, uh, it's the closest thing, transliteration to it. And that word, Christos, it means anointed one. In the Old Testament, which was written in a different language in Hebrew, the word is something to the effect of Mashiach, which in English we've transliterated to Messiah. So the word Messiah and the word Christ, they mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. They both mean the one determined by God to accomplish his work of saving his people. And so right from the start, Mark is kind of laying his cards out. This is who I'm going to write about. This is what he is about. This is the gospel of the man, Jesus, who is the Christ, God's anointed one sent to this world to save his people of their sin. And then finally, notice he calls himself, or he calls him the Son of God. So again, I've underlined it, the gospel of the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Not a Son of God. Not we're all God's children and he's one of the... It's definitive in that it says he is the Son of God. You can say it another way, and I think, oh, that's what he means. He is uh, also, when it says he's the Son of God, it means he's God the Son. You see? So it's not just like, oh, what do you mean by God? It's God the Son. God in the flesh. And so Mark here is pointing this out, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the anointed one sent to save his people from their sin. Jesus called himself the Son of God, many times. And he knew what he meant when he was doing so. We read in John chapter 10, the Jews answered him and said, it's not, for, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, execute you, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And people say, well, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, he did. And they were going to stone him for doing so. Ultimately, he was condemned to die. Matthew chapter 26, notice the high priest tore his clothes and he said he has uttered blasphemy, making himself to be God. That's what that means. What further witnesses do we need? And he was eventually turned over to the authorities on some trumped up charges that they would accept and he was executed as a result of doing so. So every word in Mark's opening description of Jesus is important. He was a genuine man. His name was Jesus. He grew up in a town called Nazareth, and he walked this earth for 33-plus years. Jesus, the one who came to save. Secondly, it's the good news of Christ, the long-awaited, anointed one whom God would use to save the world. And finally, he is God in the flesh, the incarnation, the bridge between God and man, Jesus Christ. He continues, Mark does, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So Mark goes on then. He draws attention to what was written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet was the most popular of the prophets among the Jews. They were most familiar with him and his particular writings. And in particular, what Mark does is he points to Isaiah the prophet and the portion about the forerunner of God's Messiah, because that's where Mark is going to begin his gospel. Again, the other gospels begin in other places. Mark's going to jump right into it, looking at Jesus as this servant, and he starts by looking at the one who essentially introduced Jesus to the world. And so he says there, as it is written in the prophet uh, Isaiah. Now what's interesting is he goes on to quote two different prophets. So he quotes Malachi, and he also quotes Isaiah here. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, Uh, verse 3, are those two quotes that he pulls from his knowledge of the Old Testament. And that's pretty much the only references to the Old Testament that Mark makes in the rest of the Scripture. Because, again, he wasn't writing to Jews who knew the Old Testament. He was writing to Gentiles, Romans, who were not familiar with the Old Testament. 
I would recommend, I ask you to look up a few other passages. Jot these down as well or put them in your phone or whatever it may be, and you can look at them this week. Isaiah chapter 40 through about halfway through 42. I think it goes to about verse 18. Great supplement, complement to what we're looking at today and and Mark's mission of pointing Jesus out as this servant because that Old Testament prophecy from chapter 40, verse 1 to chapter 42, I think it's verse 17, paints in, in entirety Jesus as this servant. What Mark does is he takes one verse there, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and he says, The voice of one, cry, one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now Mark's going to go on in the rest of his book to describe what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 40, verse 1 to 42, uh, verse 17 that the Messiah, God's anointed one, would come and suffer on behalf of his people. It's almost as if what Mark is doing, Mark who set out specifically to write about Jesus as a servant, it's almost as if Mark is saying, look, I'm about to tell you about the one whom Isaiah spoke, who is also the one that Malachi spoke about, that said that God would send a messenger before, I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to tell you about this servant. I find that interesting. You don't seem that impressed. Um, But I I like where he's going with it. Uh, The good news. Now, Mark isn't going to present Jesus as if, look, there's the Old Testament God and his work, and now there's a New Testament God and his work. Mark's going to present Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament things. And so he begins right by pointing us to those particular passages. Jesus said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, to abolish the prophets. I've come, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And John will demonstrate that. And he he starts right from the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. He begins with the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one whose job it was to come and to prepare the way for the ministry of God's Messiah, that messenger as he points out there. And he identifies him, John, Mark chapter 1, 4, he identifies him as John the Baptist. And so it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism for the repentance for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist. Now, not Baptist like Baptist and Presbyterians and Methodists and things like that. That's not where he is going. That's not what he's referring to. John's ministry was one of baptizing people. And so he became known as John the Baptist, at least in in our nomenclature. John's ministry was to call people to repentance so that they would be prepared when the Messiah came. And a sign of that repentance was to be baptized. Let's read the passage, starting in verse 4. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a bunch of Johns in the Bible. The two, mel- the two best well or most well-known uh, Johns are John the Baptist and John the Apostle, the one who wrote that particular gospel. Here we're talking, they're not the same guy, right? so don't kind of mix those up here if you're not as familiar. Here we are talking about the fellow that is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is this transitional figure. I mean, look at the way he's dressed. Look at the things he's calling people to do when, when the uh, religious leaders would come out to him in another passage. Uh, he, it says, what are you doing here, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee the rat? You know, get out of here or whatever. It's not a very welcoming Joel Osteen kind of message. You know, it's more like, I don't want you here kind of thing. You know, so he, he sort of has this like Old Testament vibe to him. And he's this transitional character. He's kind of this Old Testament guy, but he's pointing to the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophets. He's pointing to Jesus uh, himself here. He's described as wearing camel's hair wearing a leather belt around his waist, and eating locust and wild honey. I, I might put on the camel's hair and the belt. I'm out with the locust. I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I'll, I can't do it. 
All right, but he did it. And he, he ate his wild uh, honey as well here. John is called the greatest of those that were born among women. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. The greatest, certainly, of all of the prophets. And why was he the greatest of all the prophets? Because all the prophets had sort of this hazy view of the Messiah. John looked right at him. And that's what made him the greatest of all the prophets. He had the greatest of messages. Follow that guy right there. He'll say a little bit later, I think it's in John, he'll say, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And he turns his disciples over so that they would walk after Jesus. And then you have that creepy story where those two disciples of John are following after Jesus, and Jesus is like, what are you looking for? like, what do you want, creeper? Or whatever, and they're like, uh, where are you staying? I'm not telling you, weirdo. You know, but then he tells them. And then they, they begin to follow him. And John was delighted. John's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Follow him. I'm not upset. I can't believe you leaving my church. Or whatever. Follow Jesus is what he says there. All right, so anyway, we go on. Look at verse 7. So we have the greatest ever born of women, the greatest of the prophets, and then it tells us this, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I've baptized you with water, but that person is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how great this man is. Now, what's ironic about that is that was considered the lowest of the possible low positions, much like washing a disciple's feet, unlatching a person's sandals. The rabbis taught. Now, the way that the Jewish rabbis taught in John's day, Jesus' day, is people would be interested in what they had to say, and, and they would just follow along with him. And when he would go to where he would go, he would sit and he would teach them. And as he would experience things, the rabbi would, and he would just turn to his disciples, you see that over there? Let me tell you a little lesson. And it would just be these teachable moments all the time that the rabbi could have. And what the rabbis taught was that a teacher could require just about anything of his disciples except requiring them to take off his sandals. But that was just, no, man, that is just too low. You can't do it. And now here's Mark saying not I'm too good to take off or John is too good to take off Jesus' sandals. He's saying John's not even good enough to do that. You see, now here's the greatest born among women who has this right perspective of things, that Jesus is so far superior to myself that I'm not even able to take off his shoes. John was a great man in other people's minds, and what made him a great man in other people's minds is he was not a great man in his own eyes. And that's a very significant thing because John preached about the Messiah, not about himself. And John pointed people to the Messiah, not to himself. And that's ever the mark of a spirit-filled preacher, is that they would point people to Jesus. And so and I was telling somebody this recently somewhere, that almost like the, the best compliment you can give like a preacher, you know, you know I mean, talking to the preacher, but afterwards you're talking to other people, and they're like, what was the sermon about? And you tell them what the sermon is about. And they say, well, who, who taught it? You know, I don't remember. That's like the greatest compliment you can give a preacher because it's not about the preacher. It's about what they're preaching. And John was a guy that pointed people to Jesus. Jesus was the one that was in people's minds when John came to the close of his particular message. He exalted Christ and he minimized himself. Now, I told you earlier, I recommended you read Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 42. Well, another place that you should kind of read as well is uh, Malachi chapter 3. All right, so now I've given you like five places to just sort of, you have one for each day of the week this week. All right, but Malachi chapter 3, remember, Mark begins by quoting Malachi 3, 1. Well, read that whole chapter. Read the chapter before it, actually, because it gives you context to what Malachi is saying. Malachi is the book and the passage where we read this, and you've heard of this, I'm sure, because it's familiar. It says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, this is Malachi chapter 1.8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So this was a dark time in the history of the Jewish people, and they were still going through the motions following the Lord, but it was like a hassle for them. Oh, man, I don't want to bring my offering to the Lord. You gotta. Everyone's gonna talk if you don't bring it. All right, well, go get that 
sick and disabled lamb that we were going to put down. We'll give that to the Lord. And the prophet calls them out for that. The Lord ultimately does. And he said, you present that to your governor as like your tax payment. You see if he accepts it. Why should I? Is what the, the father says. And so they were, they were going about the motions of being a good Jew. They were bringing their sacrifices, but their heart was far from it. And what does John do? And that's why you read the context of Malachi, Malachi because it really emphasizes what John is talking about, uh, or Mark is talking about, and what John is going to be doing in his ministry of calling people is, look, you're good Jews. You're all good Jews in Jesus' day. You're doing what you need to do, but your heart is very, very far from the Lord. You need to repent and get ready because the Messiah is coming. And you need to have a heart that is ready to receive him. He calls them to repentance. And as a sign of that repentance, they are going to be baptized. Again, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John was sent to prepare the way. Verse 4 describes how they prepared the way. And that was through the ceremonial washing of a baptism. Just like baptism in our day. The whole purpose of it is an outward sign. We're going to do it next week. If you've never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a command that you should be. Come talk to us afterwards. But baptism doesn't save a person. All baptism does is demonstrate what God has already done on the inside. It's a public declaration. I've been washed clean of my sins. I've been dead, dead to self, raised to newness of life. And so it's just this outward sign of an inward work. And it's not going to save people. Even their repentance doesn't save them. Jesus is the one that saves them. And what this is going to do, this repentance, this baptism to show it, is prepare them to receive the one who would save them, Jesus Christ. Now, the Jew was familiar with baptism. They didn't call it that necessarily. They called it um, like a ceremonial washing. They understood that idea. And before they would go into the temple courts, the Jewish men, they would go and they would ceremonially, ceremonially wash themselves. And it would usually be part, portions of their body and things like that. Jesus references it in another place when he's talking to Peter and kind of confronting Peter on some of his, the error of his ways. The one that was completely immersed was the Gentile convert. The proselyte, the one who previously did not know Jehovah and now does, they would be completely immersed in the water, exactly what John is doing. So what John now is calling all the Jews to this very same thing. It was a humbling thing. There are people in our day, I'm not getting baptized publicly, all these people looking at me, and it's embarrassing. Yeah, it is, I guess. You ready? You know what I mean? You got to do it. it. It just is what it is. You got to be baptized in that particular way as a mark of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. It's his command. And so John now is calling all of the disciples. The historian Josephus, who wrote in that century, the first century, he says that there was hundreds of thousands of people that went out to be baptized of the millions of people that lived in Israel. That's a lot of people. Hundreds of thousands went out into the wilderness. They went out into the desert. They recognized that they were sinners in need of a redeemer. They don't know who that is yet, but they went out there to prepare themselves for that redeemer. Notice what it says in verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. No prophet had spoken in Israel for nearly 400 years. That's the last prophet we have, the book of Malachi, for nearly 400 years. But when John began to speak, the people recognized this man knows what he's talking about. And they went out into the wilderness. They went out into what the Old Testament calls uh, the place of Jeshimon. It's about halfway uh, between uh, Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And it's called Jeshimon in the Old Testament. And it's a word which means... Uh, the devastation. The dev they went out to the devastation. There was nothing about it. Like, well, that'll be fun. We'll get to go down there. We'll get baptized. And then, you know, the kids will go to the beach or something. There's nothing about it that was nice. It was a devastated area of land, desolate area of land. But they didn't go out for, you know, the, the entrapments of the facility. They went out to hear the message. They didn't go out to see, you got to hear this speaker. Oh, he's the greatest. so funny. Or you got to hear this speaker. He said, oh, he can tell a story or whatever. None of that stuff. They went out to hear the message. And they went out to respond to the message and repent. 
and be baptized. Nearly 100,000 or more. John's message was drawing them. And what was his message? His message is the Messiah was coming. And so they were baptized. Now, again, though, that's only a sign. Notice what John himself says. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John, right from the start, he recognizes, no doubt about it, this is only a prelude to what Jesus is going to bring. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. John knew that while water could cleanse the outer man, only the Holy Spirit could cleanse a man from within. And so this is all preparation for the one who would do the real work, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. An external uh, symbol. Now, interesting, verse 9, one of the guys who comes out, one of the individuals that comes out to be baptized is Jesus himself. Isn't that interesting? A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Well, Jesus is sinless. Let's read it. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus comes out to be baptized. Now, Nazareth is about 100 miles away from this area. So Jesus comes a long distance to do this. And despite the distance and despite that he has no sin, he comes out to be baptized. And, of course, that it, it poses the question, it raises the question, why? Why does Jesus present himself to be baptized? Well, think about the Christian faith. A person is baptized to be identified with Christ, correct? Jesus was baptized to be identified with humanity. G. Campbell Morgan, he said this. I don't know if we have this slide here, but he said the sinless was identifying himself with the sinful. And Jesus came to be identified with sinful man, and he would ultimately go on to give his life for sinful man. There's a lot of things going on with this baptism. First thing I think is this. This is the moment of decision, if you will, for Jesus Christ. For 30 years, Jesus the Christ had lived in relative anonymity. He was just a kid that grew up in Nazareth, worked when, as he got older down at the local carpenter shop. Relative anonymity, Jesus lived here. But with the emergence of John, things are now set into motion where Jesus Christ would essentially enter into, he would enter into public ministry and ultimately make his way and give his life for us just outside there of Jerusalem. So that's the first one, if you will. This is a moment of decision. Secondly, as I said, this is a moment of identification where Jesus identifies himself with humanity, but interesting also where Jesus is identified to humanity. Because you remember when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit will come and descend upon him. And John has said in another place, I wouldn't have known who the Messiah was. I knew he was coming, but I wouldn't have known except I was told the one whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, he is the Messiah. So he's identified to John as well here, as we see. And Jesus' baptism identifies the Messiah to John. It marks And here's a third one. It marks a moment of approval because having submitted himself to the plan of God, Jesus in turn, he receives the approval of God. Notice what it says here. And when he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. And so this marks then a moment of approval by God. This is my anointed one who will take away man's sins. And then finally, it's a moment of consecration because it says the Spirit came upon Jesus like a dove and empowered Christ for ministry, for the ministry that would be ahead of him. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit was always with Christ. They are one. We see that the... Uh, Holy Spirit was the one ultimately that led to the conception of Christ, as you see that's mentioned there. So the Holy Spirit was always with him. His whole life was attended, if you will, by the operation of the Spirit. And yet in some unique, special way, something new, something separate, something different when the Holy Spirit comes upon him at that baptism and anoints him. And so it's a moment of consecration. Now, Jesus was not baptized because he needed cleansing from any sin. 
Neither was he crucified because he had sin that he needed to die for. He was crucified for us. He was baptized for us. And in both of those things, he, there's a, a level of solidarity between God and man as Jesus Christ takes those things upon himself. Now, last thing I want to show you before we finish up here. Notice the immediacy of heaven's response. Look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open being torn uh, being torn open and the spirit descending upon him. The word immediate. That word immediate is a word that really stuck with, um, with Mark. Mark uses the word immediate or a similar word like that 40 times in his gospel. He uses it eight times in chapter 1. The rest of the New Testament altogether uses the word 40 times. And so he, he doubles the number in his writing alone. It's a word which is, is perfect for a servant because when a servant is told to do something, what do they do? They do it. They do that something. Oh, I'll get to it. Yeah, just put it over there. I'll take care. No, do it now. And so they do it immediately. And that really stuck with Mark here. And Mark uses the word to describe the Lord's, if you will, the Father's approval here. Here's a man presenting himself, identifying with humanity, essentially taking on himself, I will accomplish what needs to be accomplished to save humanity. Is that, is that acceptable, Father, if you will? Just use human terms here to kind of think of it. And the father doesn't pull back and say, well, let me think about it. Let me see. Give me your credentials. Do you have any resume or anything like that? Immediately, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The idea of well pleased, and I've heard sermons on the father being well pleased with the son because he just lived this life of faithfulness for 30 years in silence and all that. And that's cool. And it and works. And it's a great lesson for us here. But the idea of well pleased is yes. This is an acceptable anointed one. This is the anointed one. I'm well pleased with this. I accept this. And we're ready to move forward, so to speak. And again, I'm kind of using human terms to describe spiritual things that happen from all of eternity here. And so the Spirit immediately then, verse 13, we'll look at this later, is going to drive Jesus into the wilderness. And that's where we have the temptation of Christ. And we'll spend some time looking at that as well. But notice here, in just the first 11 verses, we already have four that are bearing witness to who Jesus Christ is. So Mark bears witness. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The prophets bear witness, as Mark points us back to them. John the Baptist bears witness. And then the Father himself says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. You need to know right from the start both John's readers, and that's what we are, we're his readers, but us sitting in this room, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus is God's anointed one come in the flesh to bear the penalty of our sins. You need to know that right from the start because it's going to impact everything that comes afterwards in this book. This is who Mark's going to present to us. And so if you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to begin at the place where you acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is God's anointed one coming in the flesh to bear the penalty of our sins. It all begins there, and it all starts there. And if you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, we'd love to talk with you a little bit further. We've got some folks up here afterwards. And just in the privacy, ask your questions as real as you want to ask them, and we'll try and respond. We'll point you to places in the Scripture that speak to those truths. Amen, friends? I hope you'll take us up on that offer if you don't yet know the Lord. Let me pray for us. We'll pick up. Our plan is to finish chapter 1 next week. So read ahead, please, plus all those other passages that I mentioned to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Mark, a servant that failed uh, publicly, embarrassingly perhaps, and like his mentor Peter who failed publicly and in an embarrassing way, Lord, he sat and he allowed himself to be restored. And Lord, you and your mercy and your grace, you brought restoration. And Lord, in some ways, because of that, Lord, we sit here and we read this uh, gospel, this message of good news. We have insight into our Savior in ways that we wouldn't have had insight any other way. And Lord, what a blessing that is for us. And so, Lord, I pray for any that are with us today that maybe had a rough week, struggled, failed, did some things that they're ashamed of, embarrassed of. 
Lord, I pray you would just wash over them. Lord, just like you sat with Peter on the side of the seashore there, Lord, that you would just come alongside of them right now. You'd minister your grace, your mercy. You'd speak words of forgiveness. You'd receive their confession of their sin. And you'd just wash cleansing over them that they might leave this room differently from how they've come in with the freedom of their burden left at the altar, so to speak. Father, pray for any that may not know Christ. Open up their eyes, their hearts to see and wash over them new, new life. Thank you for the blessing of this place and being able to gather together with one another. Lord, bless us even as we fi- finish these songs here. May they come from places of praise in each of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.